Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I will be in Indianapolis next week, September 5th. I'll be in Fort Wayne, Indiana, two weeks after that, September 16th and 17th. And then in Richmond, Virginia, September 24th and 23rd, not in that order. I'll be in New York City, September 27th and 28th. And uh, we get more hits from our website from New York City, which is why we planned a leaders forum in New York City. So if you're in the New York City area, which I know some of you are, then you'll want to check out that event. If you're interested in faith, sexuality or gender, and then we'll be in uh, Colorado Springs, October 7th and 8th, then I will, or sorry, 8th and 9th. And then I will be in Minneapolis uh, a couple times in November. Uh, If you want to attend the Indianapolis event in particular, you will want to sign up ASAP. In fact, I'm pre-recording this uh, intro, so uh, hopefully by the time it is released, the event isn't sold out because we do end up, there is a cap on how many people can come and it is filling up. So hopefully there's still room, uh, but just, we will let you know if there's not, but if you do want to attend the Indianapolis event, please sign up ASAP and along with the, the Fort Wayne um, event. Uh, if you want to attend that event, I would absolutely recommend signing up. Uh, sooner than later, uh, hopefully by the end, end of the day. We still have a few more days left in our August sale of uh, the Digital Leaders Forum. The Digital Leaders Forum is a uh, eight-hour e-course on faith, sexuality, and gender. It includes a lot of teaching from yours truly, also a lot of interviews of LGBT Christians, other pastors working through questions of faith, sexuality, and gender, I'm super excited about this uh, resource that we released. It's great for church leaders, for uh, pastors, for nonprofit leaders, or for any Christian that really wants a comprehensive learning experience on uh, LGBTQ-related questions of faith, sexuality, and gender, which hopefully includes most Christians. I mean, these are important ethical and relational and pastoral questions that we are wrestling with. So hopefully this course can provide you with at least some kind of foundation of getting your arms around this topic. So we are running a a sale. It's for the month of August, which is just a few days left. We have uh, the sale is $15 off of the digital leaders forum. If you go to centerforfaith.com, it's, it will pop right up. You can click on the shop now button and take advantage of this. I don't know what it is like 23 and a half percent off the retail price of $65 for the month of August. You can get it for 50 bucks. So Uh, That's centerforfaith.com. All right. My guest today is a good friend of mine, Jason uh, Soshnik. Soshnik. (laughs) He's got the hardest name to pronounce. And guess what? My good friend. I've known this guy for a few years now, and I absolutely butchered the pronunciation of his name on the podcast. So that's I'm going to keep it. I was going to edit it out, but I'm like, no, this is the Algin Raw. When you butcher a friend's name, the pronunciation, you just you keep it on the episode and let people laugh at you. So that's what's going to happen. Jason is the executive director of an awesome ministry called Project 619. Project 619 helps train people on youth culture, in particular questions regarding sex and sexuality. He's a graduate of Whitworth University. He um, is an incredible speaker, super smart guy, and he teaches a class on hip hop at Whitworth University. And he's a white dude, like he's a really white guy, uh, but he uh, is like an expert on hip hop. It's awesome. He's an awesome dude. You're going to love this episode. We talk about all kinds of things related to sex, porn, um, 
uh, marriage, singleness, purity culture, purity rings, Joshua Harris. <laughs> I mean, and the list goes on. Uh, our worlds overlap quite a bit in what we do. And so he's become a good friend over the years. So please welcome to the show, Jason Soshnik. <laughs> We're recording now. Um, my family just decided to fire up the Vitamix. Do you have one of those, those blenders? That, <laughs> yeah. It's like a just... torrential thunderstorm coming through my living room. So I don't know if it's going to come through the, the – I'm in the basement. so I'm not... We can wait until they get done. Nah, nah, let's just go for it. In fact, I'll probably keep all this in the podcast. So welcome to Theology in the Raw, where Vitamixes are uh, abounding above my head. Um, that's not even the right word. Anyway, I am here with my – Good friend and ministry partner, uh, Jason Jason uh, Sosnick, <laughs> my good friend. I, you're a good friend. I love that you say I'm your good friend and you can't even pronounce my name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for, with with a Priestian uh, Sprinkle. <laughs> That's not fair, man. Your your name is yeah. I don't, what is your last name? What's the well? First of all, how do you say it? And then, so Soshinek. So, so I always say Sosh and then Annette. At least give me out there. I usually get it, right? Usually. Yeah, you do. You've, you've gotten it right, except for on your podcast, which I appreciate. Um, all right. Let's try to recover. Um, good friend, ministry partner. We met a few years ago. You came down to Boise out of nowhere. You just said, hey, want to come hang? Love to pick your brain. We hung out all afternoon at Sockeye Grill and uh the the brew pub and i was just like man we see eye on so many things so um yeah you run an amazing ministry uh project six uh six nineteen six one nine six nineteen did it prep six nineteen yeah 19. tell us about well first of all tell us who you are and then tell us about the the ministry you run and then we'll just go from there yeah so I, i've been uh working around the issues of sex sexuality and relationship for probably close to 20 years, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> this is not what I ever planned on doing. Like when I was in high school, I never planned on growing up and talking about sex. As I'm sure you never planned on graduating from uh, divinity school and going on and talking about LGBT. So no. No, I, yeah, when, I, when I was in high school, I wanted to talk about sex all the time. But yeah, I went to go. <laughs> that was a totally different story. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I have now had the privilege of engaging in these conversations now for almost 20 years. I um, run a nonprofit, 619, that's dedicated to working with family, schools, churches. 619 comes from Paul's exhortation to Timothy, a young disciple, uh, to take hold of life that's truly life. And in the context of his letter to Timothy, he's, he's, he's saying, you know, as for the rich, that you're working where they're going to find identity in the things they own. Uh, but their true identity, their true life is going to be lived in Christ. And uh, it's one been a life verse for, for me, but I've also found it to be something that uh, uh, speaks to you. You could flip the things we own for the idea of sex and its uh, ability to be an idol in our life and even to be an identifier in our life. Uh, and that's why we've chosen that section of the Bible or that verse to be the project that we work on because 
what we believe is that we can use sex really to be the catalyst to talk about the one that created sex, Okay. to talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice if you ever go to our website that we have series called Greater Than Sex or Greater Than Porn, because what we believe is that there is something, there is someone that is greater than uh, these discussions. And the thing that really shapes those discussions is going to be the relationship that we share with Jesus Christ. So I've had the privilege of uh, engaging in these conversations for a long period of time. And uh, boy, have they changed over the last 20 years. (laughs) I want to get into some of that. So uh, you help both churches understand issues around sex, sexuality also, but it's almost more specifically families too, right? I mean, you do yeah. things talking to parents, talking to youth directly, but also talking to church leaders. Would that be accurate? Yeah, very accurate. Uh, you know, it's so crazy. So, you know, just quickly breaking down our audiences. So families, I'm working most directly with parents. I'm, I'm helping parents navigate many of the questions that they have. Uh, some of which you deal extensively with, uh, many of which uh, uh, I've had to engage like pornography, even just the simple conversations, not really simple, but the conversation around sex, like what is it? How do we define it? When do we start that conversation? Some of those things. Uh, and so we really believe that the parent should be the authority on this subject, that, that parents should be communicating their value to their children at a very young age. Um, How young? What does that mean? Uh, well, I, I always say it, it starts as soon as they come out of the womb with the way that you're engaging them, talking to them, modeling the Christian faith uh, that you're not really talking about sex until much later, but you're really communicating how you walk out your faith from a very young age, your kids are soaking it in. So when you start the conversation around sex, well, they've already been paying attention to every other aspect uh, that influences how we see practice, engage that one topic. And, uh, something just as simple as the anatomy of our body. Yeah. You know, kids start looking at their body in different ways around three and four and five. They're, 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 they're recognizing, oh, I'm different than, than my sister. I'm different than my brother. What, what is that? And a lot of times what we've done, especially in Christian homes, is we've, you know, we've called it a woo-woo or a wee-wee. You know, we, do, we don't want to use the, the, the technical terms that they're going to learn in school, which is penis and vagina. And, you know, just well, among as, many other terms, <laughs> men, yeah, but here's, but, but like when they go to school, one of the things that you learn in anatomy class is that that is uh, what that is. And so when I say speak authority with authority, it's, it's saying, you know, here are the things that you're going to learn in school. Let me teach you. And then also include my values or our values as a family, as we're engaging with what is going to be taught at a later age. So that way, when they go to school, it's like, oh, my parents already taught me this. Yeah. Oh, my parents already so, so you've stolen any sort of authority the school or anyone outside of your home has. I, I've um, often said, and I, maybe I got this from you, that your yeah. kids will typically view as most authoritative whom, who they hear about this from first. So if, if they're yes. five years old, they're learning from their friends, maybe a teacher or 10 years old. And then if the parent yes. comes in at 13 and starts to say, hey, now let's have the sex talk for the you know, first time we're talking about this they will view as authoritative, they will, they will filter the, what the parent is saying through the lens of what they're hearing from their first exposure rather than vice versa. Is that, is that an accurate? That's exactly right. But I, I will say this, I, we should never minimize a parent's voice. No matter, I mean, this might sound bad, no matter how bad of a parent you might be, it's never too late to share your value. I always want to make sure that that's very clear because uh, the data has changed a little bit over the years, but a parent's voice is still incredibly influential. 
Okay. And that doesn't matter if you've been a really bad parent and then you start sharing your value at a later time in life, you realize that and you want to change things. Or if you've been a really good parent, but you just haven't um, really engaged this one subject. This is something that uh, teens want to hear. The, the, the story I often share is I didn't know my parents' value until I was 21. Wow. And um, it, was, it, was, it was over a conversation. My parents had divorced. My mom was making a dinner for a, another man that she was dating. And <laughs> she, as she was making her meal, I'm there uh, just hanging out with my mom. And my mom asked me, have you ever been intimate with a woman? <laughs> and I'm like, mom, are you asking if I've had sex? <laughs> I'm like, why, why can't you just ask me this? But, you know, my mom had never had that conversation with me. Wow. But You're bless her soul, it, it was an influential moment in my life. I, uh, from 16 to 21, I was sexually active yeah. and made a choice to start over. And that was one of two conversations that I had that were tremendously influential in my life. Uh, and, and ultimately having me recommit my life to the Lord. Really? Wow. Um, and so that's why I always say, parents, uh, your voice matters. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter the age of your children when you share that value. So better um, late than never, but best yes. case scenario, start as early. Yes. Be the first one to be talking about these things. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and so I, we can go into more details of that. The, the other two things that, that we then do, so outside of families, uh, we work with schools. So we're working to uh, be a part of the overall comprehensive approach that a school district takes. We're just a supplemental. We fit into that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, essentially have four to five days within a two to three week program that schools use within sex education or human growth and development. The largest section uh, is in ninth grade, most typically, at least in Washington state. Mm-hmm. Most states, it's ninth or 10th grade that, that students are getting their largest portion of human growth and development. And so we've developed a program that allows for us to come in, speak about the benefits of sexual integrity, waiting to, uh, until you're married. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it sexual integrity. Uh, the way we define it is um, ch- choosing to uh, be in a mutually faithful monogamous lifetime relationship usually called marriage that's that's what we point to okay um and uh but what we're doing is we're talking about pornography we're talking about choices we're talking about goals that the crazy thing is and uh, we've done this in multiple states multiple economic situations there's still a high rate of students that want to get married at some point in their life now you know we we asked the question you know in 10 years and you know 10 years ago we'd ask a student and say, you know, in 10 years, what do you think you're going to be doing? And many of them would say, get married Mm -hmm. today. It's more like 15 or 20 years from the time that we're speaking. And they're 15 average age for most men is around 28, 29 when they marry. Um, It's getting, it's continuing to rise. But what we find is that that is a goal. So then like, what can we do to get to that goal? Like what are things that positively influence that goal? And the way we enter relationships influence that goal, the, the way we, um, allow things into our mind. So like pornography, pornography has an impact on relationship. This is just something that we know through a lot of science and data. Real, real so quick, we have this privilege right now is what you say to a, in a public school setting. Yeah. Public school setting. Yeah. yeah. So we're not, we're not sharing faith. Yeah. Uh, we're simply going in and sharing the data and letting students parse through it and make a decision uh, that allows for them to take responsibility for their sexual health. That's, that that's what we're trying to do. Okay. So I want to go into like teenagers yeah. and sex in 2019 and beyond. Yeah. What's the, like, are students completely turned off? 
or are they at what you're saying or are they a little bit intrigued or are they much more attracted to it than maybe people might realize? Um, like, uh, are they attracted to the conversation around sex? Uh, no, they attracted to a mono, uh, waiting to marriage and seeing the benefits of that. Um, or what's the response when you talk, yeah. what, what's the spectrum of responses you typically get? Yeah. So typically you're going to get a large percentage of people that have, uh, recognize that you're going to give an abstinence message. That's what we get labeled in or, you know, put in the box of, or some students, if they have a faith background would say purity. And we say we're neither of those because that's just not the way that we engage. We are, our programs, we, the language we use both in the church and in the school is sexual integrity. Uh, and I think the reception that we often get is one of skepticism um, because they're so used to, they, they think that it's going to be one of shame. They think it's going to be one of pointing down. And one of the things that I've really worked hard with our speakers and our team and the people that go into the schools is um, we start by saying, listen, you have room to disagree. We want you to disagree. We want you to voice your disagreements. Mm. So that right off the, right off the bat gives them the place to be like pointing the finger, like this is bad or whatever. But what, what it does is what we're doing is empowering them and challenging them to engage the material. And what we find is that, and then we also challenge them to say, it's up to you to take responsibility for your sexual health, regardless of what you decide, because not everyone in this room is going to decide the very thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And we say that that's okay. Our number one priority is that you take responsibility for your sexual health. So here's what ends up happening. We've, we've very rarely had someone that started out and was making fun of us at the end making fun of us or making fun of us at the beginning, making fun of us at the end. They, they, they actually found something within it that challenged them, that allowed for them to engage, that allowed for them to take responsibility. We've had numerous individuals that have come up to us afterwards that uh, were a mandatory reporting state, but have told us that they've been raped or abused and it's impacted the way that they see their sexuality. And so, you know, having the opportunity to go to a counselor and, and, and work with the school counselor or, or, you know, uh, or other students that say, we, I have just never heard anything like this. I, I didn't know that this is a choice you could make. So, you know, what, what are the steps that I need to make to make sure, you know, and it's, it's just really fascinating. So um, I think it starts with skepticism and I think it, it ends oftentimes with many students being optimistic okay. uh, because it stands out. And we have, purposely put ourselves up against like condoms, contraceptives, all the, you know, the, the other material that you might um, have. That's, that's a, uh, I don't know the right way to say it, but might be more progressive, might be more liberal, might be. Um, and students always rank our stuff higher. Really? And it's really fascinating. So I, I think it always starts with skepticism. I think it moves to a place of optimism how, or how empowerment. You, how are you allowed to do that? Who, who, what? what secular unless they have like a christian principal or something what school would want you to come in um and do this i mean is it kind of uh, I'd, I'd actually flip the question to say what school wouldn't want us to do this i mean <laughs> like like well let's think what well, schools I, are I, supposed to be yeah i agree maybe i'm just more pessimistic about the state <laughs> yeah. well uh uh i always say what school wouldn't want us to have it because um my my belief is that when a student has full knowledge, they're fully empowered. Like I, I'm, I'm not uh, someone that 
uh, is going to uh, rally against comprehensive sex ed. Now, there are moments and things within comprehensive sex ed that I am definitely 100% against or I abhor. Like, I don't think that it should be a part of it. Um, but there, there are many things that just the idea of, like, let's speak in the entirety. So um, some of your listeners might know of the, the, the conversations around absence or absence plus, yeah. you know, education. Um, but for a majority of America, like it really is comprehensive where, where a student is learning the fullness and the breadth of uh, education. And, and I, and I think that's true, should be true with all of education. If they really kind of understand both sides, understand, uh, the many, uh, conversations or points that they have, what I've found is that when the conversation is really honest and vulnerable and, and gives them really good information based on the facts, students often land in the healthiest and safest place right. oftentimes. Now you're going to have your French students that are going to land somewhere else. But I would say, I, or at least I've witnessed that when we're pitted against uh, multiple different messages, but there's a vastness of information that we actually have seen students uh, be empowered to make decisions similar to the ones that we're talking about. Hmm. Tell, tell us about the state of teenagers and sex um it, it, obviously we can't even talk about that without talking about porn how many how many kids are on porn these days i mean is it 90 percent and 10 percent are lying or is it what's the <laughs> well i don't i i, I don't know I these just, are I the mean, things the, that the, the smartphone is is got to be one of the most culturally significant and potentially destructive things ever created I and mean, we're giving 13 year old kids access to the world i mean obviously porn's part of that but it's so yeah. much more than that but i don't i don't know about you but if i had a smartphone when i was a teenager i never would have left my oh. room i mean <laughs> oh totally like i don't yeah <laughs> i mean i just remember playing sega genesis and final fantasy i mean <laughs> like and then staying up until like four in the morning <laughs> like like um yeah what, what's crazy as a side note I don't know if you ever uh, grew up with video games, but uh, uh, in high school, the game that was really popular was Myst. I, know, I don't know if you ever, uh, but anyways, so our offices now exist in the very building uh, where Myst and Riven, these games that you played on your computer, that took and stole many hours of my teenage years. I'm now in the basement of, which no way. I don't know what that symbolizes, but whatever. Um well, yeah, so the porn, uh, I mean, let's just call it an epidemic. Yeah. Would you call it an epidemic? Or t t give us a real few-minute kind of yeah. on, on teenagers and, and porn right now. Uh, so let, let me start with this. So uh, the average age of first exposure to pornography uh, used to be 12 or 13. That, that historically is always what it's been. And that before makes a lot the, of sense. Before the internet? Before the internet? before the internet, because I mean, 12 is around this time. 13 is when, uh, your, your, your body is preparing or has gone through puberty. It's the age at which there's more arousal. There's more questions. There's more curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, would happen, happen to around 12 or 13, you, you, you're having a lot more freedom. Um, you know, uh, I remember at 12 and 13 going over to friends' houses and that was also an age where they were left alone in the home. And so yeah. what would they do? They would seek out their father's playboys. Yeah. Or I remember I first saw a, a playboy because I was walking down an alley on my way home from school and it was like sitting out of the trash. Yeah. Or I remember in fourth grade, I, I remember, <laughs> I, I won't give his last name, but Robert brought 
a Playboy to school and it was Madonna and we're in the corner looking at it. Like that was, that was how pornography spread. Yeah. Um, but that's just not how it is today because the only way we ever saw any story and, and if you want to compare that to what kids are viewing today, it's on a whole different scale. It's, it's gone from like, like someone in a swimsuit to someone like having a sex act. Like it's, it is, it is absolutely crazy at what pornography is today versus what it was then and what we were exposed to at the very early stages. So today uh, the average age of first exposure is 11 years old, which is directly linked to the average age at which uh, a son or daughter uh, gets a f- smartphone. Mm. So the average age at which someone gets a smartphone now, a child, is 11 years old. Is it really? The average age at which someone is first exposed to pornography now is 11 years old. There's not a lot of data or, or I, I, I guess I should say uh, studies that have shown this, but the correlation is there. The causation is there. And uh, you're just seeing an explosion of data that is saying that, that kids are being exposed to it at a younger and younger age and the exposure rates or the, the rates at which they habitually look at it are continuing to rise. So if I look at, uh, if I parse through the data over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, what teenagers are looking at and how much they're looking at it has grown. Yeah. Now, from one study to the next, it kind of it kind of goes all over the place. But this is what I often say to students. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And most likely, they're, um, when I'm in a school and I'm speaking to ninth graders, I would say 90% of them have seen it. Now, I would probably guess 30 to 40%, maybe, maybe, the, maybe it'd be a little bit lower, are actively or habitually looking at it. And, and I, I always want to say this, especially um, when I'm speaking about this to, to Christians. One of the things that happens in the church is with this one subject, we often talk about it being an addiction when the reality is it's only habitual. Like addiction, they have no control over. A majority of Christians, the ones that I speak to in churches, many of them, they have control over this. This is not something that controls them. Really? If it controls them, that's an addiction. If it's something that they can have control of, it's a, it's a habitual how, habit. How you, can you give some stuff? What habitual? Is that like once a week, ah, I slipped up, looked at porn once a month or once a day, but it, I, See, I don't, I don't you- know if it's that as much as control. Like, do you have control over it? I mean, okay. I think if you're looking at it once a month, it's habitual. Like there's some sort of control you have over it, but if it's like, I, like I, I, I have, I have known and met individuals that it's like, they've got to look at it in the morning before they go to work. They got to look at it at lunch during their break. They've got to look at it when they get home and they've got to look at it before they ever make love to their wife. Like, wow. like it, it has, it has a, a deep seated control that, that I would say is an addiction. Is it chemically addictive? Like tobacco, alcohol, drug, you know, yeah. cocaine or whatever it's, it's your, yeah. actually, your brain so rewired that it, you can't function. With- Most definitely. Wow. I mean, the, da- the, the, the stuff that you would look at the science around it, uh, would, would point to it being as addictive as a drug. It, yeah. it, it uh, the way in which your, your brain essentially rewires the more and more you look at, at pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it rewires the way we think about others. It's, it rewires the way we think about sex. It rewires the way we engage one another. Uh, and today, 
pornography is much more violent. I, I, there's, a, I mean, we could go on for a long time on this, but let's just look at one area. Um, there has been an increase in sexual uh, or uh, dating uh, uh, violence, dating assault, uh, sexual assault uh, in the high school. Like it is, it is increased exponentially. It's happened uh, as well at the college level. Really? I think it's now one in three women uh, at the college level, maybe one in four uh, are sexually assaulted. And most oftentimes it's by someone they know. And I actually think that, that has a lot to do with pornography because pornography today is incredibly violent. Everyone that is looking at, and I don't exactly know how you study this, except if you just watch it over and over, but uh, all of the studies that I've looked at have shown that it, it over these last several years too, as the rate at which uh, young people are looking at it, it's also gotten a lot more violent. And what have you seen? You've seen dating violence become more and more of an issue. <clears throat> when 10 years ago, when I was in the classroom, uh, I never had to talk about pornography or I didn't talk about pornography and I never talked about like sexual coercion or sexual assault um, or uh, uh, consent. Like those were never things that were something we taught. Now, did we need to teach it? That's up for debate. But four or five years ago, we were one of the first programs that said, we've got to engage in this. We're like we've, we've got to start talking about these things because uh, one, pornography is influencing this. And if we can get to pornography, then we can maybe stop some of this. And if we can talk about sexual coercion and sexual assault, uh, we can actually yeah. maybe see a turn. What's really interesting, and you know this too, but We've even, we've gotten some flack for this, but we've talked about like what it means to be, uh, to have courtesy, to be a gentleman, yeah. to, to like, and the data actually would show that by teaching manners, it actually uh, helps decrease any sort of assault or uh, coercion or any of those things because women learn how to say no, men know how to be gentlemen. They, 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 they like to hear the no and to respond and say, okay, that means no, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm responding because that's what that they, they have said that that is not something they want. It just seems but going like I've gotten a lot of trouble for that. Have you really? I mean, I, oh yeah, so, yeah. Gotten, I, I, it doesn't I, like, surprise me. I, I, Leonard Sachs. You know Leonard Sachs. He he talks a lot. Yeah, he talks about it. In yeah, the class of it's. And yeah, even when I read it from him, I'm like, whoa, can you say that? You know, but it's like, and he's not being prudish or even really, really conservative, but just like, gosh, like yeah, that teach ladies to be ladies and men to be gentlemen and, and respect women and yeah. women to allow men to be men. And, and, and he doesn't overplay it. Like in some maybe conservative context where it's like, you know, women shouldn't drive cars or whatever. And it gets really patriarchal and he's not yeah, totally all, nothing like just that. showing a decent respect of another human being and also honoring and celebrating the differences between human beings. Um, I, I so, see it as empowering. I just, what I think it's just shocking to me how on the one hand, our society is very progressive in terms of being anti-patriarchal or maybe not being, but like the, the preaching against misogyny and against patriarchy and, and all these things. And yet that same, the same voices that would be the loudest there don't seem to be like condemning porn as much as it should like porn. Is it, doesn't porn isn't it just profoundly misogynistic is it or is that like I, maybe maybe i 
Maybe I <laughs> you're you're asking me as if, as if I watch it all the time. High school days when you know, the video cassette or whatever. But I mean, it's like this was all about men getting their pleasure off of a, the woman was an object of of pleasure. She always said, you know, it's like, yeah. and if you're saying that's it's gotten way more violent, I'm assuming it's not violent towards men. It's probably violence towards women. How are yes. we so? Or is that, is that accurate? Would that be an accurate? Well, I think it's, I, I do think it's a little, I, I actually don't know exactly if how much it is towards men, but it most definitely is towards women. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's just training men to treat women in a much more misogynistic. Most definitely. Seem like, right? Yeah, most definitely. But I, I will say this because historically the issue with porn has always been a male man issue. Yeah. But one of the the fastest growing group of individuals that are looking at pornography are women. Really, women. Right I think that's ages true. eighteen to twenty five. That, that's that's valid. Yeah. What's the percent? From what I can yeah, see. Um, give me some. Do you have any off the top of your head data on on maybe the age group and percentage of men versus women using porn? Well, it's still it is still vastly different. I mean, there is still quite a bit of a gap. I think. Um, I, I you know I think men. Uh, once you get past 18, uh, uh, you're, you're looking at men. I'm going to say conservatively, conservatively, it's uh, probably 60 to 70%. Habitually? Habitually or, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that data would, would look. I, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of like six different things right now as I, as I say that. So that, that actually might even be a little bit higher than, I, than, than it might be. But, but then let, let's say, though, for women, it's like 20 to 30%. So it's about half of what men okay. are doing. I would, that's probably a better way of saying that. Um, that's still a lot. Because, I mean, you think a third of every three women you see on the streets is. Yeah. One out of four. And I also think it's now I don't have a lot of information around this. I've just, this is what I've observed, but I also think it's changed dating behavior. I think it's changed the way in which uh, men and women interact when it comes to a romantic relationship. Uh, because I, I think, and you, you could argue whether this is good or bad, but I think it's caused women to be much more aggressive in the dating and romantic um, mm -hmm. relationship. I, I think it's caused men to be a little bit more passive. You know, what's crazy, gosh, I mean, we could even move into how this has impacted the romantic aspect. Uh, Aziz Anasari wrote a great book called Modern Romance that looked at a lot of um, the dating rituals and habits of uh, millennials. And it, what's, what's striking is how influential, I, I believe, the internet and social media and specifically pornography have been in those uh, behaviors. Because what, what in, what's ending up happening is... Uh, you're 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 finding that that women have become have had to become more and more um, uh, out there, aggressive, like asking for what they want because men just haven't done. They've abdicated, abdicated, and just not engaged yeah. in some of those those uh, those uh, areas. Well, that uh, Mark um, Mark Regnerus, I, I was looking at a book, uh, Cheap. Sex. Yeah, have you read Cheap Sex? No, no, I haven't. Oh, it's, 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 it's exactly what you're saying. He said, I mean, in the wake of, and what I like about Mark, I think he's a conservative Catholic, but it, it's not a, a yeah. he doesn't, he's a sociologist and he doesn't yes. project his faith upon his sociology as far as I can tell. But 
Yeah. Um, so he just spe- he's speaking to a you know a secular audience, and he just said, yeah, in the wake of internet and porn, you know, um, guys are no longer guys that want to have sex in the past have had to do kind of romantic relational things to get that like there were hurdles there were you know women were the gatekeepers of sex and if if i know it's stereotype but it's stereotypes are generally true right that um if a a woman is going to prefer sex in the context of some kind of relational environment whereas a guy is way less needing of that typically um in the past a guy would have to do all the relational stuff the the wooing Mm -hmm. the the taken on a date, whatever, to get sex. And what, he's, what he said, and again, this is just kind of from the sociological d- data. Um, now, if a guy doesn't get what he wants, he can just go home and watch porn and it's going to be, in some sense, sensor, sensory, sensor, how, do you, how would you adject, adverb that? Anyway, his senses are going to be almost more satisfied <laughs> by going home and getting bored. So it's like, He's making, because that's how he's trained his brain. Yeah. So he's making, yeah. and plus, even if he does get her in bed, she's probably not going to do half the things that, or can do that he's going to see on. So he's way less motivated. So he's going to go and he's like, you know, you're going to go down on me or not, you know, okay, fine. If not, then I'm going to go home and do my thing. And so girls, girls are, are seeing that. So for, and this, again, this is just from the sociological yeah. data in order to get the relationship. It's almost like it's flipped around that, um, even, even the, the, the percentage of, of teenage girls giving oral sex yes. is off the chart where it's almost like giving somebody a hug now at parties and stuff. It's just not even considered even a sex act, but it's like, well, that's what I have to do to get any kind of attention. Cause the guys are like, Hey, take it or leave it. If not, I'll just go find it somewhere else. Yeah. And he said, it's just, it's, it's the, the ripple effects of, of how that bleeds into relationships, marriages, sexual relationships, romantic relationships is just it's hard to even foresee the long-term ramifications of it oh most definitely i i'll just give you one piece of information that i i've learned that i think speaks to that very truth is that by the time most boys turn 18 most men turn 18 they've spent ten thousand hours alone either on uh, uh the computer their smartphone or watching tv all of which is alone I mean, think about 10, like what kind of social norms that creates. What was that? 10,000 hours. Yeah, 10,000 hours. Isn't that, I mean, That's crazy. if that data is true, yeah. that speaks to the very truth that you're now talking about. Wow. And I actually think it is because I, <laughs> I, it, it just, it, it looks dramatically. I never would have thought, so we're starting to have this conversation around uh, dating at the collegiate level. And dating overall is an issue. Whether you go to a Christian university or you go to a secular university, there are still some core parts that are playing out. Now, Christian university, you've got purity culture. Secular university, you've got the hookup culture. But there are still some core things that that they're, they're wanting to address. And I actually think pornography and other issues, uh, the, the 10,000 hours, uh, I think all of that influences those conversations and, and students want to talk about it because they want to know hours of porn watching necessarily or 10,000 hours alone for, you know, okay. it's not all porn, but it, it could be video games. But a lot if you're of video alone games. in front of a screen for that long, it's, I, I would <laughs> conservatively, I mean, a high percentage of that is porn viewing. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I would probably gather that a lot of high, uh, a higher percentage would probably be video games, yeah. but, but think of the content of some of the video games they're playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the video games they're playing, I mean, if you're thinking of Grand Theft Auto, let's just use that as one example. Very popular game. 
but how are they treating women? It's it, like, it's very misogynistic. Really? It's it, like, and, and then they're murdering and killing. And I mean, they're, they're treating individuals as less than. And so that, that does have an impact. Are they having sex in Grand Theft Auto? Do they? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, like they, they. I mean, they they can hook up. Like they they can pay a prostitute, and Seriously? I mean, they get the. It's. Has that hit the virtual reality yet? I mean, is that with VR VR sex? I mean, is that being? I don't know. I, I I I would say that it's it's. I think we could look to Japan to see how really? that's influencing it. If it is, wow. I mean, Japan, where Japan's at, is probably where we'll be in the next several years. And you, you and I have talked about this, like the idea, uh, you know, the next big hurdle the church is probably going to have to tackle is sex with robots. Sex with robots, baby. Yep. And so, yeah. I mean, which is absolutely fascinating. That's just how far the culture has gone. Given the trajectory of technology and society's view of sex by, by 2050, more people will be having sex with robots than with other human beings. Yeah. And that says like, no way, whatever. I, okay. As long, unless technology stops developing at the rate that it's going, there's yes. no evidence that it's like going to like plateau or, you know, and um, is porn use getting less or more? Well, everybody's going to say, well, no, technology is going to keep developing. Porn use is getting more. So just marry those two. Like if those two trajectories keep going, they say by 2025, uh, there will be a growing number of typically wealthy households, home and not families necessarily, but but homes that have that will start buying um, uh, sex robots. Twenty twenty five, because by then the technology will be getting so good, yeah. so real, it'll drop down the affordability. Because right now you can buy a sex robot. I think it's, I mean, it's really expensive. Uh, I've looked into it. I took no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Houston, Houston's one of the first cities to open a sex uh, yeah. bot brothel. Yeah, like they're yeah. they're they're trying. Like, I don't know if it was successful. I think there was some legal ramifications yeah. or legal battles around it. But yeah. if you don't think this is real, just look oh. at Houston. Houston there's uh, already there's, a, there's an international robot. conference every year. They're, they're in their fourth year now. An international conference of sex with robots. If they meet every year, oh, actually, I didn't know about that. Yeah. I gotta oh, check yeah. that out. Yeah, just they just had one last month, or what? They had academic papers that come out of it and stuff, and like the pros and cons. Wait, I mean, it's it is. I'm I'm thankful that there are several secular voices there saying this might not be good for us. You know, like <laughs> yeah, what it's going to do to relationships? How it again, again, and again objectifies women? I don't encourage yeah. my audience to Google too hard, um, but I mean, yeah, this is. Um, it is uh, creating the fantasy of most, you know, uh, men and, and making uh, this, this robot to kind of as a projection of that fantasy. And uh, what's that going to do to how women view themselves and how men view? It's just, it's, 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 it's pretty insane. Let, let, let's, yeah. or I got one more question on the porn thing, then we can leave it alone. Um, is there a big difference between non-Christian and Christian use of porn? I've often heard that the percentages whatever data you look at, it's not too different inside and outside the church. Have you seen, can you confirm or correct that? Yeah, I would, I, like those that are viewing pornography, I've not seen anything that's different. Really? I, 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 I've, I've seen, from what I can tell, what I've seen, the, um, the data looks pretty similar. Like, uh, but I will say this, I actually think pornography 
how it impacts uh, a Christian versus someone who is not, I actually think that that's where you've got to look closely. I, I think that pornography, um, because of the way we've talked about sex and the way many men and women have grown up around the purity culture, there is a great deal of shame. And uh, uh, yeah, there's a great deal of shame that ends up being a part of this conversation. It, it, it's really fascinating. You know, one of the big things that happens in churches are these accountability groups. Like let's get an accountability group. And the most common topic that would, when I was in an accountability group was porn. Everyone was struggling with porn. And first of all, I always find it fascinating that you're in an accountability group with everyone else that's struggling with the same exact thing, but whatever, (laughs) like it's another conversation. But what was funny is that everyone would just uh, have this talk. uh, There'd be a slap on the wrist and say, okay, don't do it anymore. Um, but there is this overwhelming sense of shame and shame, you know, communicates this idea of I am a mistake versus I made a mistake. And there's this propensity, I think, within the evangelical Christian culture that we do more looking to the thing that we don't want to do than to the very thing that we want to do. And oftentimes these accountability groups exist because what we're wanting to do is grow in our faith in Christ. But the truth is, is we spend more time focusing on the thing that we don't want to do, which is look at pornography. Hmm. And I think that's a huge hurdle, a huge opportunity. I think it's a huge wow. need to be able to start changing the paradigm of the conversation uh, because we have so many church members. And I, I think church members that are leaving the church because they don't know and have not been taught any other way except don't do it. Yeah. They've not been taught. Let's fundamentally change this and change the paradigm so that we're looking at the thing that we want to do, which is grow in our yeah. relationship with Christ. Let, let's okay. Let's trans. That's a good segue. Um, you, you, I, I don't know if it's still listed on your website or maybe on some material material yeah. you have that you say very boldly, we are not a purity movement. And you've even alluded to that saying, you know, you talk about sexual integrity, not sexual purity. So let's just go into the whole purity movement thing. And I eventually want to talk about, um, Joshua Harris, he was on our, my podcast six months ago and, and obviously yeah. there's been some changes in, in his life. Um, uh, why do you say you're not a purity movement? You're teaching kids to be, especially when you're in churches, to be sexually faithful, to be pure yeah. before marriage. Well, what is it about the purity movement that you want to distance yourself from? Yeah, I, so purity and abstinence, I, I really shy away from but I shy away from them, not because I I disagree with the heart of what's trying to be accomplished. It's typically though the way in which they go about trying to accomplish that very heart issue. Hmm. So uh, when I, so I recommitted my life to the Lord at 21. One of the things the Lord just really clearly spoke to me was uh, I, I really needed to spend time in scripture, really trying to expose myself um, to this faith that I really had not exposed myself to any more than just through going to youth group and showing up at church. I just really hadn't read the Bible. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was really clear to me was, um, or, well, this is probably more something I wanted to do, but as I was going through scripture, I really wanted to know is like, choosing to wait until marriage, even a thing in scripture. Like, is this just something that like people, cause it never, no one ever told me why no one really dived into scripture. No one really, uh, 
gave a theological argument for why we wait until marriage. It just was felt like it was always like the dare program, just say no. And we all know how well that worked. And so, um, I, I, um, sat out to really look at what scripture had said just for my own life, not for anything else. But in that time too, I started reading all these books on purity and abstinence. And, and what I found was there was just, it was all about rules and regulations. It was about managing my sin more than, uh, the grace that's extended through Christ. The, 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 the focus also was, was, almost entirely on my genitalia. Hmm. Like it was like what not to do with my genitalia until I said the words I do. And then it gave me instructions for what I could do Hmm. in the marriage relationship. So for me, I just felt like we're missing out on what I believe is a bigger picture. I believe that uh, the reason we use sexual integrity is because integrity comes from the word integer, which is whole and we really believe sex is something that's, that includes much more than our genitalia. When you look at scripture, even when you look at when it's first mentioned in scripture, the Hebrew uh, way of it speaking about sex was, uh, it says in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, some translations start, have started using made love to Eve, and, mm-hmm. um, but, but the word, the Hebrew word is yada, and uh, yada uh, is uh, no, like it's to deeply know to, to like mind, body, soul, spirit. And, and I always find that so fascinating. Like, why is it a relational word that's used for sex? Well, I, I think the very short, which really needs a much more extended um, answer is that I, it's not just our genitalia. It's, it's about the way we truly know someone. There was a professor of the school that I graduated from. I graduated from Whitworth University who said, you're not really going to know what real sex is until seven years into your marriage. Wow. I mean, just for a moment, I just want to have our, your listeners think about that. Like, you're not really going to know what real sex is until seven years in your marriage. Hmm. And in, even being single, like that was profound because like, think about what you go through in seven years on average you've you've typically gotten to know the person quite well (laughs) all the things that you like fell in love with are also maybe some of the things that are absolutely driving you insane (laughs) um the the uh you're you you've probably had a child or two that's typically what happens in those first seven years so you've done life like you've done great life and you've done the the crappy parts of life and i actually think that um in that you get to know someone. And I think that that's why um, we uh, have to speak about sex in a way that's much more than just genitalia. So we refrain from purity and abstinence mostly because we, we wanted to get away from the rules and regulations. We wanted to get to the heart change. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get to the place where really, if we're going to follow uh, what we find in scripture, if we're really going to look at God's grand design as the sex maker and really follow that design, well, I think it has to be a heart change first, not a uh, like mind change that leads to following rules like that. That only lasts for a good period of time until finally we can't do it anymore. Mm. The only way we really follow what we find in scripture is it, it, there has to be a, a holy change. I always say holy and like holy, you're like set apart, but holy W H O L L Y like where it's, it's impacted and intruded every part of your body. Like it really is a part of your entire existence. Yeah. And 
and that's what sexual integrity is where it like mm-hmm. it flows out of the essence of who you are because of your identity in Christ. What is, what is the uh, purity movement? When people talk about the purity movement, purity culture, like where did that come from? And what are some of the negative effects results of that movement that you've seen? Yeah. So um, the, the purity movement kind of started in the early eighties. It it really kind of started more as a thing that was happening in the schools uh, uh, in the South and, um, through some federal funding and some other stuff, it really was kind of through so, um, some welfare um, reformation stuff. And it's, it really got its big kickoff um, through the Clinton administration, which is really interesting. But hmm. there's a whole lot of stuff that we could go into wow. there that we won't. But um, the biggest the biggest explosion of the purity movement really probably happened with the true love weights campaign. Um, so the true love weights campaign, Josh McDowell, um, it it became this thing where you signed a pledge card, you got a purity ring and you went, uh, they also then went to the, to DC and I think they, they put crosses down and it was like a pledge that they were going to choose to wait until you're married. Uh, and then it was right around that same time that just a number of other movements, uh, purity movements started, purity riders started. So that's where Joshua Harris, um, uh, right around that time, uh, was becoming popular. He, he where he, uh, kissed dating goodbye. And then, um, you also had silver ring thing, which is a campaign to, uh, go around and do these lively, uh, concerts and conferences and, uh, maybe not concert, but, uh, events assemblies that got kids to, to put on purity rings and say, they're going to wait until they're married. And, it was it was just this movement uh, uh, that was trying to instill a moral, uh, a, what I believe is a good moral decision, but it just was all about rules and regulations, um, and less about the relationship with Jesus. Hmm. Um, it was a lot about virginity. That's probably the easier way to say it. it was It was really about holding on to your virginity. I, and for me, I always cringed because I was I was someone who'd already had sex but was starting over. Mm-hmm. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of place for me. And I knew I was not an anomaly. Like I knew that I was not someone in the church. And so I always have thought like, what, what do you do with that? And, and, um, there just weren't a lot of answers for that. And that's where, um, you know, we have kind of gone, but with regards to how it started, uh, I, that was really kind of the crux of where it began. And then it became profitable because federal funding started kicking in, um, uh, the church really started promoting a lot of these different groups and um, it, it just became yeah. a cash cow. If, if, uh, I, I don't know any other way of saying it other than people, I think with the right intention, but um, with, with some, some uh, definitely monetary motive too, uh, we're able to start having these conversations uh, around the, the purity movement. And, you know, I, not all of it was bad. I, I, I want to be careful though, too, as a sexual, like when I say sexual integrity, I, I don't want to overcompensate or overcorrect for what it did. I, I actually think there's some really good things the purity movement yeah. did that we should not overlook. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, in, I've talked about, I think when Josh was on my podcast, I think I talked about it, but I, I was never really that. I, I don't even really remember it, the purity movement. I, it's more like looking back and people talk about that. I'm like, oh yeah, I do remember that book. Or I, I guess I didn't remember that, but I wasn't, I'm, I feel like I was never a product of it, nor did I experience some of the fallout. Um, but looking on from the outside, at first when I kept hearing critiques of the purity movement, I, w- I would say maybe maybe eight or 10 years ago when I was teaching, I think at Cedarville University when some professors were 
would kind of talk about the negative fallout of the purity movement. I was kind of like, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good thing, you know? But the more I thought about some of their critiques, I was like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's not good. So, um, I mean, obvious, uh, hopefully it's obvious, sexual, well, like not having sex until you're married is a good thing. (laughs) Um, We're not advocating for sex outside of marriage. We're not diminishing the profound importance of sexual integrity and the destructiveness of sexual immorality like the bible speaks really i would say clearly and 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 aggressively really against sexual immorality but what, so what are so affirming that affirming that yes god calls us to have sex within the context of marriage what are some of the negative things that you've experienced um maybe unintentional things that have happened within that movement that have not been helpful? Uh, I think what, so let me point to one very important thing. I think that what the purity movement oftentimes missed, which is so surprising, uh, is it used a lot of analogies and not a lot of scripture. I think that they used scripture, but they also then used a lot of analogy. and I think that that then lessened, like, I don't remember a lot of scripture per se, like scripture, like Hebrews 13, four would kind of be brought up, you know, let, let the, don't let the marriage bed be defiled. And yeah. uh, it was just one offs and it was used to make a point around a rule or a regulation rather than allowing the scripture to speak the truth or allowing huh. your faith in Christ to be the thing that led to how you engaged scripture and ultimately then led a life that was not sexually immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was kind of the, the idea of getting the, um, cart before the horse rather than the horse leading the cart. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's what's led to a lot of shame. So, so one example would be, uh, Elizabeth, um, smart who you might remember from being, uh, she was abducted when she was 12 years old from her home in Utah. Um, uh, she's LDS Mormon, uh, and, was then found several months later in um, the woods, just directly, I think, behind her house or pretty close to her house, and uh, was raped. Uh, and uh, but was was brought back, and she was talking about how she grew up in this purity culture. She grew up in this conversation around abstinence, and she said, you know, when I was younger, they used to use this analogy that um, sex is like a piece of gum. And when you chew that piece of gum, that's like you having sex. And then once you've had sex, who else is going to want to chew that piece of gum? So essentially saying that you're a chewed up piece of gum if you've had sex. Hmm. Not realizing that that analogy could impact someone that was abused or raped. So that was what was stuck with her. It wasn't scripture. It wasn't um, a, a, a... something that uh, was an identifier like her relationship with Christ. It was this piece of gum. Mm -hmm. And I think that what happened early on in the movement is there were a lot of analogy like this. Like, you know, you take a pink piece of paper and a blue piece of paper and uh, and they're cut out at like a heart and you glue them together and you let it settle. And then you try to take it apart. And what happens? Well, you leave pieces of the heart and okay. Like when you're 12, that might be fine. But if that's the analogy that's left with you when you're 25 and you don't have any sort of tools to really engage the sexual frustration or sexual arousal that you have at 25, because it's totally different than when you were 12, hmm. then what are you going to do? And 
my my thought the biggest failure was that we didn't give students the tools to really dive into scripture well to look at the bible and allow the bible to be the guide the very thing that was going to be unchanging now we all know that at 12 you might read a verse and it speaks to you one way and at 25 you might read a verse and it speaks to you another way and at 40 you might read the same verse and it speaks to you another way well that's that's just the essence of what scripture is but what we find is that the words have not changed now a few translations might look a little bit different but the, the, the core words have not changed, right? Yeah. Analogies, they'll change. Like, and they don't speak to you the same way at 12 and 25. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where the, the failure of the purity movement came in. And I think that that's what's led to a lot of shame. I think that that's, we That's made, the biggest piece, right? The shame piece. Totally. Because, because what we did is all these rules led to your identity being in that you were a virgin or you were not having sex. But what happens if you had sex? What happens if you were no longer a virgin? Well, your very identity was stolen from you. The foundation of what you believed in crumbled. So what do you do? You believe you're a mistake rather than you just made a mistake, right? Because yeah. guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that, that ended up happening a lot within the purity movement is that there wasn't this, this uh, effort to really help individuals manage not just uh, before, but also what, what you need to do if something after happens. I think the other thing too, this kind of goes along with the, the analogy piece, but um, I think we just had a prosperity sexual gospel. Yeah. And it, there was a lot of like my smoking hot wife and my uh, <laughs> like, if you choose to wait to have sex until you're married, you're going to see new colors right? Like it was, it was just like, uh, obscene stuff that just is not true. The truth is, is we have Christians that get married and they have horrible sexual lives the first year because they just like, it's confusing. They don't know what to do. They also have been told all their life that no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden you say, I do, and you can have sex as much as you want. And it's yes, 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 yes. Well, your brain doesn't just flip on like that. And we don't do a lot of training with that. So there is just all these different things that I think that we set um, our, 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 a generation up for yeah. uh, failure rather than helping them achieve the very thing which we wanted them to do, which was to live sexually immoral lives. I, I hope that people don't ever use that phrase. Look at my smoking hot wife. <laughs> it still gets used. I'm telling it's you. It's so awkward. It's like, I know. I see guys do that. You know, typically they're, I mean, young hipster you know whatever former driscoll disciples i don't know but like i want to welcome to my stage my smoking hot wife and then everybody in the audience especially all the guys are like hey, yeah she is or what do you smoke you're smoking something man your wife is ugly as sin you know or like all like called to like examine this woman on stage and like from head to toe. oh And then they go further and they talk about their sex life and how they're having great sex. And it's like, dude, really? Like, how is that helping a teenage boy? Yeah. Like, and, and what good is that doing? Like, how is that pointing to the truth that we find in scripture? So, so you know, (laughs) Um, you know, I I, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I would, I, I, I think that this leads into that conversation around Josh, Joshua yeah. Harris, right? Okay, like, let's 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 hold off. I was gonna say a couple more. So, okay, um, all right. So the shame piece of of yes, uh, 
if if you mess up uh what does that say to your identity in jesus where is the cross where is forgiveness um, yes it's theologically destructive i think to say like the damaged goods the you're kind of done or you're like a flower petal that's been torn apart all this stuff like that yeah. is so profoundly un christian like I don't, like oh man that's just so bad um totally and also you you mentioned it but just to reiterate i cipher this from a lot of people that um if you have sex you're a chewed up piece of gum what if you've been sexually assaulted what if you're among the 10 to 20 percent of say christian females who have had some level of sexual assault in their past like they interpret yeah. that of um and, and even psychologically apart from this whole thing it's common for especially women to interpret that as they did something wrong to bear the guilt you know even if you're not a christian yeah. but then add to that a legalistic atonement less gospel and that oh my gosh I, i've talked to women that you know they stare at their purity ring after they've been sexually abused um and sometimes by their father who gave them the flipping ring yeah and what that does to oh my gosh it's so it's so i mean I, yeah almost hard to describe irreparable you know the damage that, that can do um but then also a big one for me too is that um and we've talked about this the if you wait then you will get a spouse not only a spouse but you have great sex with your spouse so just oh, wait and god's yeah. going to reward you and usually the same movements that preach that message would critique the prosperity gospel i'm like all you're doing is sexualizing the prosperity gospel if you yes. wait god will bless you with x y and z and so when people are 25 30 35 and didn't get that or they did get a mate and that mate turned out to be a real jerk or the sex life maybe there's a maybe it was a great marriage but the sex life was a yeah. train wreck you know totally get it up the woman didn't enjoy it, whatever um okay. yeah i just I, there's it's hard because i i val i so value sexual and i'll just say it I mean, sexual purity is a good thing but it's one yeah piece of a much larger sexual ethic and if if you separate that piece from the overall arching sexual ethic, that, that can be really misleading, if not damaging. Totally. And, and I'll also say this, this is, I mean, I could give you a list, but I'll just do this point too. I think one of the, the biggest failures of the purity movement is it focused too much on marriage. Yeah. Okay. I, I, is that where the I, idealization I, of marriage goes really? Yes. Up I, I think that yeah. we are now paying the ramifications of that uh, yeah. uh, because uh, singles, we, I think that there's a growing number of individuals that are writing on singleness. I think there are a growing number of individuals that have recognized some of the mistakes. I think there's some great books out there, but I will say this. I, I, I think that we missed a huge opportunity at the very beginning to do more to address singleness and we're having to now make up ground. Yeah. I, I mean, we're just, we're having to, to own up to the mistakes and we're having to, uh, because that, that you, you brought it up a little bit there just the dynamic of how we speak about marriage um, that needs to change uh, as well as does our uh, num number of times that, or increase the number of times that we talk about singleness because, you know, individuals are waiting much, much longer to get married. Yeah. I, th I think I read a few different statistics or, or sources saying the same thing that it might be for the, in the first time in the history of human civilization, that the percentage of humans of marital age who are still single is is now more than 50 percent yeah there's always been a percentage but now but people who are are at the marital age let's just say 24 to 37 or something uh, yeah 
to have the, the high, more than 50% of people with 24 to 37, not married, never been married. Maybe they will later on, but to have them there being single, that's just, that's just, in, that's off the chart. I, th- I, I personally, I think porn has a lot to do with that. Yeah. If married, if you had to wait to marriage to get a s- sex and you don't have to do that anymore. And if Christians are doing it at the same pace as before and, and porn, I think can be, obviously it's much easier, but also less, there seems to be less guilt than actually having sex outside of marriage with another human. Um, I, I just wonder if that's why there's not as, as big of a rush to get married. But all, all that to say, I think that we are living in, in a really different culture right now where if we as a church don't know how to value, speak to, um, uphold singleness on par with marriage, some people even say above marriage, um, we're going to be profoundly irrelevant to more than 50% of the people in, that we're trying to reach. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So Joshua Harris, um, I'm not going to give an introduction to Josh. I, I, I had him on the podcast a while back. He wrote a very significant book. Um, I kiss dating goodbye. I said, I'm not going to give an introduction here. I am introducing him, but um, I had such a wonderful time talking with him on the podcast. And so recently, for those who don't know, um, you know, he's that him and his wife announced they're getting a divorce. And he also said that he's, well, and I want to talk to you about this. He said he's no longer a Christian, but he, he specifically said, I don't know the quote in front of me, by every standard of assessment that I know, I'm not a Christian. And that caught me. And I think we talked a little about this and maybe there's been an update. So let me just throw out my thoughts on that. I was like, okay, I, I wonder if I would be a Christian given the sort of really conservative context in which I grew up and what constitutes a Christian. I mean, in some contexts I grew up in, like if you believed in women in ministry and a millennial view of the eschaton, you might not be a Christian, you know, and I, I, he, that's not what he's saying, but I just wonder, is he an atheist or an agnostic or is he somebody that's really having his conservative worldview so rocked that he's just in limbo trying to sort things out? Cause I think those are two different places um yeah do you have any thoughts on that yeah i i you know it's it's difficult i don't know i i I don't know where he's at i um you know when you when i first saw i saw that too like it was just like one little piece yeah but it's like are you are you saying that you're you're uh identifying as a as a christian not by the standards that evangelicalism has done it or are you not identifying as a christian period yeah. because you have no more uh faith or belief in jesus christ i i i really don't know um that's for him to answer and i'm sure he'll answer in time um it seems like he would resonate so much with like a i don't know more of a progressive post-evangelical like a pete ends or i don't know you know the crowd you know the you yeah know, totally i, I just I know a lot of progressive churches that I think if you went to, um, I, I personally, I, w- I wouldn't feel at home there and, and wouldn't necessarily recommend them, but I think, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think yeah. it seems like, but I, I, I don't know him well enough to even say that, but. Well, here's what I will say about Joshua. The thing that I've always really appreciated about Joshua Harris is he's always been one to own up to his mistakes. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, I've followed his writing closely just because it has been an influential source within the purity culture and, uh, at least his first three or four books. So he had, I kissed eating goodbye. And then he had boy meets girl. And then he, 
I mean, he had a, another book called um, the, the problem with porn is lust or something like that. And the thing I always found interesting, this does not happen a lot among uh, Christian celebrity authors where they own up to past mistakes that they might've had in their writing. Mm -hmm. um, Joshua always had this knack about him ability to be able to say, you know what? I didn't quite get it right here. Mm -hmm. And I want to, I want to own up to that. So for me, I just never saw that in a lot of other Christian writers. I still don't. I think that once someone gets into a niche, they just don't own up their, to their past mistakes for whatever reason, or they, mm -hmm. they're afraid to change anything because they've had a following and, and they, they stick with it. So um, when he said, when, when he first started this journey about three years ago um, and uh, wanted to do the documentary around I Kissed Dating Goodbye and really explore the stories of people that have been hurt by it, I, I actually applauded him. I, yeah. For me, I, I've never used his material as a, uh, as a source. Like I've, I've, I've always refrained from it. I, I didn't think that it was because of the very reasons we just discussed. I didn't think it was a, a, a great resource for, for many people if they're really going to grow, um, especially in the area of um, sexual wholeness. I, I just felt like it just really limited that picture. But the thing that I've always appreciated is he, he, he would always uh, own up to his past mistakes. So like, if you compare his first book to that book on porn, they, they were different. Like mm. he, you could tell that he had had some growth. And by the time he wrote the book on porn, he was now a pastor of a large mm. church. Uh, I think that he had learned uh, some of his mistakes. I, I, I actually would listen to some of his sermons. Mm. Um, and, and it was, it was really fascinating to hear him talk. I, so I, I always thought that that was really um, I thought that was always really um, powerful for me. I, I really appreciate when people can own their mistakes. I try to do that in my own life. Mm. Now, what's interesting is uh, it will be a point, like I felt like this was no longer a part of the conversation, but now with the documentary and now him walking away from his faith and then separating from his wife, all of these things, and then um, then wholly embracing uh, the uh just an, a, an entire way of living that that's just counter to everything that he's done. It, it's just really fascinating to me. And what I, what I really wonder is what's going to be the conversation in the year ahead. When I do forums, when we travel, when we speak to parents, yeah. like, you know, I, I don't know. It wasn't a part of conversation for the last three or four years, maybe five years, but now it's going to become a big part of that conversation. And that could be a really good thing or it could be something that um, that is uh, going to dramatically reshape the conversations around sex. I don't know. Here's what I don't like, because I, I and I haven't paid too close attention to the kind of wake of what his falling out or whatever is is created. But what I don't like is people all of a sudden saying, "See, the purity culture doesn't work," or everything he said oh. was wrong. It's like, okay you can have that view that if somebody ends up having a life change, it goes against what he previously taught that what he previously taught is therefore wrong, but nobody consistently lives by that. <laughs> Come on. I mean, no. either what he said was true or partially true or not true at all. Whether he ends up falling away from it later is does shouldn't support or critique the content of what he said. Right. Don't you, I mean, it, well, yeah, I mean, I, 
Sure. I, I, I would critique some of what he's sure. written. Like I, I what, like, what like written. fell away or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I, I was doing that long before he ever stepped away from the faith. Right. But I've always found him. Um, I've had, uh, I know you've had him on the podcast. I've had a couple of interactions with him. Um, I've always found him to be pretty genuine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I think more than anything, I just, I mourn for his loss. If he really has walked away from the faith. Yeah. Um, I, I'm more than anything. Um, I, I mourn for that. Like I, 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 um, yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I th- there is something that has gone. Here's what I've known is, um, even though I may not have agreed with him and there are many others like him that were, um, I, I would say, quote unquote, um, the godfathers of the purity movement or the mm-hmm. abstinence movement, I may not have agreed with a lot of what they've done, but they've taken a lot of shots that I don't have to take any longer. Hmm. Like I, I, I got to learn from their mistakes essentially. Yeah. And personally, I am grateful for that. Like I am grateful that there are people that have gone before me that have uh, made mistakes and I've gotten to learn from them. And you know, the truth is, is people are going to learn from my mistakes. They're, they're going to like, there's going to be stuff that I do that someone else is going to come along and correct or do differently. Or, and I think that's just the evolution of some of these conversations. That's just what happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully it's not as much, hopefully like we're trying to do it in a grace filled, theologically rich, uh, and honest and vulnerable way. But you know, there, history has a time of telling yeah the story i feel like the the circles i swim in whatever those are or maybe the the brand of christianity that i pay most close attention to seems to be almost universally either somewhat critical against the purity movement or whole or just outraged against it (laughs) yeah Uh, but it's i we talked about you know i had a recent experience where i was in a context where there was um unqualified affirmation of purity without even seeming to be even aware that there's been <laughs> some fallout <laughs> which was kind of shocking do you do you see where is evangelicalism across the country on this i know you can't speak definitively on that but but you would be a better source than most people because you speak in different contexts on on these issues yeah. are there still large pockets of evangelicalism that's still doing the late 1990s purity talk thing without even either caring or even being aware that there's been so much fallout with the shame and abuse and stuff. Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I have individuals that have gotten upset because we don't use the word purity. Um, and so I, I would argue that there are still, um, segments that, that do that. I I would actually argue that are probably still large segments. Um, But I do the message at all. They learn from some of the mistakes. I mean, or, yeah, I think, I mean, definitely it, it, it's not, I mean, you're not going to find too many that are going to do the, be doing the same late 1990s okay. uh, stuff. They've, they've adjusted because the culture, the, the generations have, uh, have changed, okay. but uh, there are still some that are doing, uh, you know, quote unquote, similar uh, messages. Um, you know, I've had a chance to go through a variety of different sermons and, and um, a series that other churches other groups other youth pastors have done and there has been this this uh i would say this evolution but the overarching conversation around purity still continues to exist so much so that 
it, it still focuses a lot on the genitalia. It still focuses on um, what not to do. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a big challenge. I, I, you know, when you've grown up with it, it's, it's a lot easier to mimic it when you're now the one that's teaching it. Um, unless someone's given you a new paradigm or you've spent the time to really dive in and find ways to do it a little bit different. Um, do, do you and see, so is anybody within the purity movement or maybe just talking about sex as a whole, is anybody talking like, okay, wait until marriage. Don't do it until marriage. I agree with that. That's one piece. And yeah, one piece of a Christian sexual ethic. But who, who's there? Are people talking about what is sex for? Like, why did God, is it just simply mutual pleasure or even the pleasure of the guy and the woman? It's her service to the husband. That might be more of an old school, whatever. Um, what role does procreation play into this? Is any, Protestant, yeah. do you know any Protestant that is actually talking about that? <laughs> I just, it's, well, I mean, we, we, that's a lot of what we do. Yeah. Like, like, one of the things that we often talk about is uh, uh, so often what the, what we do as Christians is respond to the culture's definition of sex. Okay. So when the culture gives a definition of sex, we say no, but the reality is there is a very rich definition throughout scripture yeah. and we should be the ones challenging the culture to be saying no to what we are saying. And that's just not what's happened. Well, we, we so I, would say, I would say we've, uh, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. But then I'll, yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it is yours. I, this is one, and you know, Christians bemoan the sexual revolution, sexual revolution, this sexual revolution, that, but we have almost blindly adopted the sexual revolutions, severing of sex from procreation, hook, line, and yes. sinker, except for the Catholics and maybe some liturgical Protestants. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I, that's my little. Well, you know, you're, you're right. Like that, that, that's true. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of other individuals or other groups. You know, one of the things, someone who I think has done a pretty good job of that is Timothy Keller. Keller yeah. has always done a, a phenomenal job of talking about what sex is for. Okay. Uh, I've always appreciated the way he's engaged it. Um, you know, uh, uh, Del Keen, um, who yeah. uh, wrote the book Sex in the Eye World, I thought did a phenomenal job, but then also some of the other side writing and other things I've read from him, I've always thought are, is, is, is speaking to a lot of that. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, of, I, as you put me on the spot, I'm like trying to flash through all the books and all the many people that um, I come across. I, I uh, Well, let, let me, while you're thinking, I, when I say, I'm not quite fully Catholic in this yet. I'm truly trying to search through it. And I could even, um, even bib biblically, uh, sex is at least in part designed for procreation. Obviously in a fallen world, it doesn't always happen. And um, obviously, I would say obviously, um, pleasure and unity and bonding and oxy oxytocin, whatever, <laughs> um, yeah. is, is all part of it and even have like the song of songs talks about sex from beginning to end doesn't mention procreation but the overarching and the new testament seems to downplay it to some extent and even that's kind of up for grabs but having said all that there is i think clearly through special revelation and general revelation a link a an undeniable link between sex and procreation and all i'm advocating for is that christians in particular protestant christians would start with the default position sex is at least in part intended for procreation and then move and explore are there possible morally valid reasons for engaging in sex 
without the intention of trying to procreate. Maybe family planning, yeah. health of the wife. Hey, I got 10 kids. I don't think 11 would help me do ministry. You know, wh- whatever. I don't know. But, but beginning yeah. with a default of not, and I think my default growing up as a Protestant, especially a non-denominational low church is obviously procreation is some completely separate thing from sex. Um, now maybe let's explore, do we want to have kids or not? You know, is it convenient for us and all these things? And I just think we, we have approached the relationship between sex and children so unchristianly, unbiblically, really. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's fast. I mean, I, this, these are questions that I haven't raised up until about two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a no. in the new Testament. I, uh, <laughs> I talk about sex all the time and, se- and sexuality. And I just recently I said like, you know what? I think there's more to this procreation thing that I, goodness, if I was that blinded to it, I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. Um, totally. Well, I, I want to add to that. I will say that, that some work that's been influential, it wasn't Protestant, but it was Catholic and it was the theology of the body. Yeah. I'm reading um, that right now. Chris, yeah. And in Christopher West. Yeah. So like the, just it, which directly came from the sermons that Pope John Paul II had given. Yeah. And, very rich, very theologically deep. I, I mean, if your listeners are any, uh, if anyone wants to really read some just really great writing around yeah. um, some of that very nature and so much more, I would highly recommend it. But so real quick, that's Chris West and he's got a theology of the body for beginners. Yes. I would start there. Yes. Before yes. wading through the 500 pages of. <laughs> yes. I would highly recommend that. Um so I, I so let me start with procreation, and I've got two other things that I think are really important with when it comes to sex. Um, what, what's really interesting when I'm speaking to both adults and youth, I always say, if you want to know the power that lies on sex, let's just quickly look at one very important thing. And I show a picture of my family, mm. and it's like, boom, there you go. Like, sex has the ability to create life. Like that that is in and of itself one of the most powerful most beautiful one of the most mysterious things we could ever talk about because i think that that's really important i think procreation is something that is left out of the conversation around sex we have separated life the ability to create life from sex yeah. like that has been something that the sexual revolution has done a phenomenal job of doing which is separating the very act of sex which allows for us to create life and move that away. We've separated it entirely. Which is a blip so all, on the history of the church. Up until the 1960s yes. in the West, in the yeah. Protestant West, 1960s, nobody ever would have even entertained the idea that sex is a separate thing from procreation. Totally. And now now this is the era that we live in, where, where sex is completely separated from any sort of uh, ability to create life. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in the cultural context. Uh, the other two that I'd, I'd quickly say is um, the the culture does this somewhat, but I think the church really needs to do a better job is pleasure. Like, like sex is meant for pleasure. Like we do have a God that is a God of pleasure. Like he wants for us, he gave us our five senses. Mm-hmm. The, the, the purpose of the five senses is to enjoy food, to enjoy the view when we're out hiking to, to, to smell either that food or the very nature in which we're walking to, to, to be able to touch the people that we love. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah. just even thinking about the, 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 the very act of sex and the genitalia 
and like the the pleasure that is found in the nipples, the pleasure that is found on the tip of the penis, the pleasure that is found in the clitoris. Like, wow, you're I, I, and I know I can say that on your podcast, but I'm, I'm but, like, like, like <laughs> I was gonna get a little coffee, but I'm, I'm good. <laughs> but right, like like pleasure is a part of this yeah. that we have to talk honestly because you know when I when I speak to students, the very first thing that they think about when I ask why would one of your peers choose to have sex, it's always the last thing they say, but it's the first thing they think about, which is pleasure. Like right. it feels good, right? So I think that there there is a deep deep need to be able to talk about pleasure mm -hmm. that that is a part of this and the other thing i would talk about when it comes to sex is protection and um and uh god in his grand design did create a time and a place for us to engage this very thing that creates life that gives us pleasure but in a very particular place and that's that's in the act of marriage um now there's a whole nother conversation too and the protection that we have as singles, recognizing the power of the first two, um, which leads to a ton of other conversation that we could, if we had time, dive into. But I will say this, protection, one of the, the illustrations that I often give is um, uh, uh, like a crucible. Like uh, a crucible was this uh, mortar and, and stick that you got in science class right and yeah. you would have to mix chemicals in that and that was that was always a thing that you were told like don't put it on the table because you'll burn a hole in the table <laughs> you know and being a punk teenager what do you do you put it on the table to see if it burn a hole or chip the paint that's what it would do right yeah. but like the crucible was this place where um you could mix these chemicals i i actually think marriage is one of those places that we're able to mix all of this and and there, there are others but i think those are two very important ones pleasure and um procreation and God gave us this protection. Um, yeah. in, in a, a footnote to pleasure, though, is it's pleasure integrated with bonding, too. And we now know that from all yes. the neurochemicals and stuff that happens yeah. between sex, right? And that's undeniable, yeah. right? That, that Totally. Orgasms create bonding with the thing you're having an orgasm with or the person. Yep. Uh, yeah. Or pornography, if that's right, what right. you're <laughs> masturbating to. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I, I'm still, I don't know the answer to this, but the relation, is there a higher hierarchy? Cause I want to affirm both. And, and from an evolutionary standpoint, yeah. you can almost say, well, the pleasure is there so that we do it. <laughs> it's like an old, it's like a, <laughs> right. I mean, um, all the good stuff that surrounds it is to, if it wasn't there, then we wouldn't procreate and our human, you know, civilization would end in a few hundred years. But, um, um, but that, that, that would work. Well, no, I was going to almost said for the male orgasm and not for the female, no, the female orgasm is going to motivate her to want to engage in it. So, so yeah, well, I almost wonder from an evolutionary naturalistic perspective, you can, or from a, as a, okay, as a Christian, let's just say natural law or general revelation. There's these, these truths of, of bonding, of pleasure, of procreation are all, you can, you can see them there. Um, if, is there a higher, I mean, I, I, have you thought more deeply through the relationship? Like, could a married couple be morally, is it morally valid for a married couple to say, we are going to get married, um, we feel called to marriage, we feel called to each other, um, therefore we are going to engage in sex, but we have zero desire to even try to procreate for no sort of medical reason. Like, there's like, you know what, we don't want to 
we just neither of us really want kids but we feel called to marriage which will include lots of marital sex um i i've got a little short response but you're I, i'm looking at your head wheel spinning so <laughs> yeah so i'd love to hear your response because i i i uh there was a question like this that was proposed a while back really? but i would love to hear I, my response yeah. isn't isn't it's not solidified i, I in typical press and sprinkle fashion, I wouldn't really give a black and white response because I don't think just, I don't know, I'm not there yet, but I would say, I would just simply say the burden of proof rests on you to come up with a moral argument that that would be okay. Um, I, that, that's, a, I, that's just where I'd leave. I'd say, okay, that, that's, a, that's a, an interesting position. It's, it would resonate with most people in the West, most secular society and most Christians. Um, can you justify that from scripture? If you, if you feel like you can, and, and you, you've even been aware that it's possibly at odds with God's design for marriage and sex, at least be aware of that. You've wrestled with it. You've come up with a, um, a, a good argument for why this could be okay. Maybe, you know, we really want to be released to serve God's kingdom in ways that we can do with kids, whatever. Maybe there's an argument there, but at least recognize that the burden of proof rests on you, not on me. Like if I said, well, let's think about that. They said, what? What's it to think about? Then I say, no, no, no. If you don't even think this is a possible moral dilemma, then I think that's where I would be more black and white. Like, I think we need to go back to, to scripture because it seems, I mean, I don't see in scripture marriage being primarily about simply having pleasurable sex and spending the life with the one you romantically have fallen in love with. Like all of those things are very modern. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying they're not, they're all biblical, not unbiblical, but all biblical. Um, marriage hmm. seems to be a vocation that God calls certain people into. And I would say at least in part, if not primarily for the creation of a family, um, so I'm, I'm 60% yeah. there. So don't, don't tweet that. <laughs> it seems like as I read scripture, as unbiasedly as I can, it seems that marriage, sex, procreation are all kind of part of the package deal. Now through the fall, obviously there's infertility, old age, whatever, yeah. you know, like not every married couple, you don't need kids to have a legitimate marriage, but a legitimate marriage does seem to be oriented toward the creation of offspring oriented toward part of the purpose part of the design not the whole design but at least part of it to where if you say yeah. want to get married but this significant aspect of the god's intention of marriage we're just not even going to consider for no real valid reason i would push back on that is that i wasn't prepared to talk about this so i don't have any notes of <laughs> no this is i i these are great thoughts so i the the two things that, that stood out to me were um I think it's going to depend on how you define what sex is. So the, the question of what is sex for? And then also what is marriage for? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, those, those, those two questions then will determine whether or not you think that's a part of it. I, I would, I would tend to agree with what you're, what you're sharing. I, the thing that quickly rushes through my mind are um, uh, you know, infertility. So what, what do you do with that? If that's no. such, you know, what do you do? about the number of children um, th that that go unadopted every year. Yeah, that's a good um, one, yeah. 
And so, yeah. yeah. So, or even, so or are even you, if you follow my logic, it could say, okay, so is there no place where you say, okay, we're good. We have 15 kids. We're not going to try for number 16. Um, once you open up that, and this is me pushing back against everything I said, once you open up a door to, okay, there is a place of having sex and not trying to have kids in that sex act, which I think, yeah, I, I would agree with. I, I only have four kids. So <laughs> some people say I have three too many, but um, God, I lost, yeah, I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> no, I think I, you know, uh, one of the one of the dynamics that I think that is that is at play within this very particular conversation is um, the two questions, and I think too there there is this dynamic of is is sex or marriage, and this is for both, is it selfless or if it's, or or is it selfish? If it's selfless, the way in which you go into it and the things that that are the the byproducts of that, I think then. Yeah. Um, cause I, I would agree. Like if it's, if, if you're, if it's meant to be selfless and it's meant to like, let's just talk about pleasure. If pleasure really is about not pleasuring self, but pleasuring other, yeah. um, the same would be true about procreation. Like, is, is it more about us as a couple or is it more about, um, um, the very essence of what marriage is supposed to be, uh, and what sex has the power to do, which is to create life. Right. Yeah. And then, and if that's true, then, then what happens if you can't create life? And, and I mean, these are all, they're, they're very fascinating. I, I think yeah. that, that, that is the, um, the infertility or sex in old age, or whatever, to me, that, that's an easy one. Cause that's like, that's not a, that's not, that's part of the fallen world or whatever. God, God saying closing the womb or whatever, like that's not, um, that's kind of out of your control. And because I don't think sex is only yeah. for procreation, I don't, I wouldn't say, Hey, you're infertile. Therefore as a married couple, you got to be abstinent, you know, like, um, no, there, there, <laughs> there are other, uh, values of, of a sexual relationship outside of procreation, but to say, but to just completely take procreation or let's just say an openness to having kids again, yeah. uh, a couple falls in love. They want to get married. They come to me for marriage counseling saying, we're called to marriage, but we are not going to try to have kids. We don't want to have kids. Yeah. I would say, I, I would question whether you're actually called to marriage by God. Ooh. So, Ooh. yeah, that, that's, yeah. Oh, I, I well, let me, somebody. can I, can I, I just say this. whether that calling yeah. come from God. <laughs> this, this, so here's why I love this conversation. And I think it goes back and circles back to some of the conversation that we've been having uh, here um, on, on your podcast. These are the conversations that never happened during the purity or absence movement hmm. right like yeah. and these are some of the questions that students have asked and are asking and parents are asking and have asked and i think that uh what we're doing right here needs to happen more in yeah. the church setting like i i like yeah. these are deep and meaningful questions and and th they need room to have these conversations I, I mean i think what we're doing is essentially modeling the very thing that i i would hope would be happening at a much yeah. my, much more smaller micro level yeah because uh, i think giving the space to be able to ask these questions i think gives them room to take ownership of their faith and in this area in a very rich way yeah that's good Dude, it's been an hour and a half. I just realized the time. Um, probably, <laughs> probably wrap this. I could keep. I, dude, I could talk to you for hours. But the good thing is, I get to, and and my audience doesn't get to. So, <laughs> uh, 
J- Jason and I, I mean, mentioned this, uh, but we're actually starting. We're working. Can I, can I talk about the youth project? Yeah, go for it. I mean, it's not that we haven't signed on the dotted line. Well, informally, I guess we have. But I mean, we're, we're um, Jason and I are teaming up this year, 2019, 2020, to produce a, a, um, a robust, thorough, compelling, beautiful resource for youth um, and parents and youth pastors on sexuality, gender, sex, um, conversations. So, uh, you know, it'll probably be video-based, um, a whole slew of short, super compelling, uh, probably really expensive uh, videos that <laughs> youth leaders, parents can walk through with their youth, with the person they're discipling. Because this has been my number one question is, okay, you know, pastors are now saying, okay, I, I, I know what books to read. I know how to uh, disciple people in conversations about sex, sexuality, and gender. Um, but what in the world do we do with youth? And youth pastors are typically at a loss of how to, how to have these. How, how to instill a truly comprehensive, robust Christian vision for sex, sexuality, gender, um, in a way that's not only true, but compelling. To me, I think that's probably one of the most significant needs in the church. So Jason and I are teaming up on that project. So yeah, any yeah. other thoughts? No, I think you, you've articulated it well. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to be able to do this with you. And I think it's a, it's a needed resource. I, I, the way I've described it is it's, it's one of a kind. Yeah. It hasn't been done. There's no one else that's created something like this. I think the, the vastness, I think the robustness, I think the depth with which we're wanting to tackle almost any of the subjects that we've come across when, when talking about sex, sexuality, relationships, uh, gender, all of those things, it, it's, it's in this yeah. series that we're trying to create. I, I say it's, it's unlike anything that's ever been created. And, and I would say, honestly, instill, kind of what I said, instilling a, a true and compelling vision for God's, for, for, for sex, sexuality, and gender in a way that's going to resonate with teenagers it yes. might be one of the most important ethical things that we should do as a church in the West in 2019. Would you, I mean, I don't. Oh, most definitely. Especially in the wake of the smartphone internet and everything. And just the way that just the ramifications of sexual revolution and everything we've been talking about, about people getting pieces of the sexual ethic, but then not instilling a complete vision. And if adults are, it's hard enough for adults. How, how are we going to do this with, Where's the church going to be in 30 years in its view of sexuality, gender, and so on, if we've had minimal yeah. compelling training? So I, I just, and I don't, I don't say that because we're the ones producing it. This is the most significant. I just, if I, if we both died tomorrow, I would still say yeah. in heaven, I guess, but <laughs> this is still <laughs> one of the greatest ethical needs in the church, not just yes. sex, sexuality, gender, but especially for, for teenagers. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I didn't plan on doing this, but if, if any of you out, you know, uh, I, I kind of mentioned in passing that, that this, it will be a very expensive project. So I, both you and I agreed, like either we're going to do this hundred percent, it's going to be a, an awesome thing. Um, or we're just not gonna do it at all. I don't want to do something halfway. Okay. I don't want to do something that's on a shoestring budget where we're, it's just kind of crappy video quality and everything. So for me, it's like, what, what does it take to produce this thing? And then let's go find the money. So if there is anybody out there who's like, oh my gosh, we would love to help you guys. What can we do? We are raising support for this. And in a sense, if we don't, if we don't get the support, we're not going to do it. Like I don't have the, I don't know. 
hundred, $200,000 it might take to pull this thing off to do it. So until we get that, we would not be able to complete it. So if you are interested in, um, uh, contributing to this project, or if you have any more questions about, um, about what the money's going to go to and what the needs are, whatever, um, you can email, uh, Chris at centerforfaith.com, C H R I S at centerforfaith.com. Or do you have anybody on your end or, or that they can email? Um, it all, it all goes in one pot. So it's not, yeah, I would just have them email Chris. So that way it doesn't become yeah, yeah. an issue. And then that way we can, we'll, yeah. be following up with one another. Yeah. So if, if this is something that resonates with you, like, man, I would love to invest and email Chris, Chris at centerforfaith.com. Yeah. And we we're, we're an open book financially. You can ask us any questions of where this, where is this going to go? What's it going to do? So um, thanks so much, Jason, for being on the show and uh, we'll have to catch up probably in the next week or so again. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Hey, Preston, before I go, I just want to say thank you. I mean, you do some incredible ministry. I've always appreciated the work that you do, the conversations that you spark, especially here on theology and the raw and, uh, you know, I've said this personally, but I want to make sure your listeners, cause I know your listeners believe this and that's why they listen to you. You, you do a phenomenal work oh, thanks, man. Uh, and you put yourself out there uh, day in and day out. And, uh, I just deeply appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship and oh, I'm grateful it, for your voice, uh, in the midst of, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the craziness that sometimes can ensue. So yeah. thanks brother. Well, vice versa. Also, before I forget, uh, project to tell us where people can find you and you also have a podcast you do too, right? Yeah, so Project 619, uh, uh, six spelled out, S-I-X-1-9.org. You can go to drivetimepodcast.org, just how it's spelled. Uh, it's for parents, it's specifically, yep, it's specifically for parents. It's a it's, it's a very short podcast. We, we only have two series so far. It's not uh, quite like yours. Our, ours is just simply meant to equip, and so we have conversations around sexual integrity and pornography right now, and okay. doing one on social media here this fall. Awesome. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate yeah. it, man. Thanks, brother.